Good morning again. Welcome to the bridge. So glad to have you here. Um, if you were paying attention in the uh, announcements and if you read the newsletter, uh, you'll know that this week is, uh, is a week where we're especially emphasizing prayer as a church. And we're, and we're doing that in a, in a few ways. Uh, but one of the ways that we're doing it is this week of 24-7 prayer, this, this desire to, to offer God an unbroken chain of prayer from one person or group in the church to the next. That's kind of the idea. That's the, that's the goal. Now, that, the inspiration for that idea ultimately comes, or one of, the, one of the places it comes from, is a movement that happened in a little community called Herrenhut, Germany in 1727. And I know as soon as I say 1727 Germany, you're like, I'm out, I'm done. This doesn't sound interesting at all. But it is, it really is interesting. There was a rich young man named Count Zinzendorf, who sounds like a made-up person, or maybe a Sesame Street character, but he was real. And he had a substantial property, and he offered it to this, this group of, of believers, Christian believers from Moravia, to settle there. And for about five years, it didn't go well at all. There was bickering, there was infighting, there wasn't a whole lot of evidence of spiritual power. And, and then Zinzendorf and some of the leaders of the community committed to pray together for, for revival and for evangelism. And, and out of that came this this commitment by 24 men and 24 women in the community to take one hour a day and, and sort of to kind of pass it on. And sometimes other people would join and there would be joint gatherings. But it was these 24 men, 24 women who kind of took this forward so, so that there was this unbroken chain. And the inspiration for them was Leviticus 6, which talks about how the, the, the fire on God's altar can never go out, that it's got to continuously burn. And so they said, well, this is our prayer. Our prayers are this fire. We're going to have them continually burning on God's altar. Now, uh, we're trying to do one week of this, although uh, the last time I looked at the document, we're on track for one hour of unbroken prayer, starting at 12 o'clock. Way to go, Ruth. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens to you guys. Um, but does anyone want to guess how long this 24-7 prayer thing went on for in Herrenhut? Because it was longer than a week, and it was longer than a month, and it was longer than a year, and it was longer than a generation. It was 100 years. 100 years of unbroken prayer within this community through the middle of the night for 100 years. And some of you might go, well, it must have been a really big, you know, it's like a city, you know? Like, sure, they could do it because they had so many people. The number of people in the Heronhut community was about 300, which is a, a roughly the, a num- the number of people who would call the Bridge Church their church home. 100 years. Now, I'm going to tell you at the end of the sermon about some of the stuff that came out of that 100-year-long prayer vigil. I'm not going to tell you it yet. You could Google it, but I hope you'll just listen through the whole sermon. I'm going to tell you at the end, major cliffhanger here. Uh, but, but in the meantime, I want to tell you about another prayer meeting, one that was a lot shorter, but some have called it the most powerful prayer meeting in church history. So let's pray and then get into the book of Acts. Um, Lord Jesus, I thank you again so much for this morning. I'm so grateful again, Lord, just to be able to be here in this place. uh, And for those who are on live stream and just, just worshiping you, hearing your word for the gift that this is. And I do pray, Lord, that it would be received as a gift by all of us. 
Lord, who are part of this this morning. Uh, God, that we would hear your voice, that your spirit would move among us, that you would shape our hearts, and that we would go from here more like you and, and with a greater love for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Acts chapter 1, uh, we've just started this series in the book of Acts, our origin story as a church. Last week we looked at the ascension of Jesus and all that that means. Uh, we're picking it up in verse 12, Acts 1 verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Remember, Jesus had said, go to Jerusalem, wait until power comes on you from on high. So they're waiting in Jerusalem, they're staying there. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So this, this is the crew. This is the group of uh, disciples of Jesus in Jerusalem. There were probably more in Galilee. We read in 1 Corinthians that, that Jesus appeared to hundreds of, of people. But here in Jerusalem, this seems to be the, the group. We read in the next verse, it was about 120 people. And it comprised three major groups. Uh, so you had the 11 disciples... We're going to talk in a moment why there weren't 12. So there were 11 disciples. There was this group of women who Luke tells us were kind of the, the financial support and provision for Jesus and his disciples in his, in his ministry, which is interesting, isn't it? That, that Jesus, for the most part, in his, in his earthly life, relied on what we would call normal human means of provision. It wasn't like every day Jesus was like a crumb of bread. Boom! Subway sandwiches for everyone. For the most part, there's just normal human means, and, and the miraculous was the, uh, the exception, the very real exception, but the exception and not the rule, which I think is the same thing today, that God, for the most part, uses normal human means of providing, and, and once in a while does the miraculous. In any case, you've got the disciples, you've got the woman, and then you have the brothers of Jesus, and, and the mother of Jesus, his biological family which is astounding when you think about it. Because we have stories in the Gospels, like in Mark chapter 3, where Jesus is, is gathering a, a large group, he's teaching, he's doing miracles, people are drawn to him, and his, his family hears about this, and they go, he's out of his mind. He's full of himself, we've got to go and, in Mark's words, take charge of him. Which, whatever else that means, they certainly don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, right? They grew up with him. Mary raised him. And all of a sudden, in Acts chapter 1, they're actually praying to him. They're worshiping him. I mean, can you imagine worshiping your big brother? Like, not metaphorically, but literally? Can you imagine praying to your son who you raised and praying to him as though he was God? And that's nuts. I love my son. I'm not bowing down to him anytime soon. And yet these disciples are, are these, these brothers and mother of Jesus are seeing him in this way. What happened? What changed? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about all the people that Jesus appeared to, he includes James, who was a brother of Jesus. 
And presumably, Jesus appeared maybe to his, to his other family members, or maybe James told them, however it was, it was the resurrection of Jesus that changed everything for them. And I think the same thing is true today. You know, a lot of people believe that Jesus was a good guy, right? He was a good teacher. Ask people on the street. They don't know anything else about Jesus. They say, oh yeah, he's one of the, you know, the great spiritual leaders throughout history. But, but something changes when you account for the resurrection, that, that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And this being a, a solid historical event that I think has really strong historical evidence going for it, that Jesus rose from the dead with a, a body that was no longer subject to death and decay. If that's true, then Jesus isn't just another guy. He's not just a wise teacher. He's worthy of worship. So, I mean, I, the centrality in the worship of Jesus is, is, the, is the big point that will carry through here. But I just think it's fascinating, the change that has taken place for, these, for the, the biological family of, of Jesus. I think that's incredible. Let's keep going. <clears throat> in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. And he said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number, and he shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Mm. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the field in their language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Now I said last week that the, the church did not emerge and ultimately explode in a context where everything was easy and ideal. It, it happened in a time when there was incredible pressure from inside the church and from outside the church where there were all kinds of crises and problems that had to be addressed from the very beginning. And, and here is presumably the first one. What do we do about Judas? What do we do about his legacy? Because to a human perspective, Judas was a major embarrassment a potential stain on Jesus and the church. So what do you do about him? Now let's recap the story a little bit. Luke does for us a bit. Let's, let's do it as well. So Judas was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, his, his inner circle. Uh, but not only that, uh, John in his gospel, another disciple, tells us that Judas had a leadership role. In, in the group of disciples, that he was the keeper of the money bag. He was the treasurer of this group. Uh, now, now, the week before the crucifixion of Jesus, he's staying in this village of Bethany, and uh, there's some people in the house, and a woman comes in with a, a jar of perfume, really expensive, like one year's wages, kind of expensive. And she takes the jar, she breaks it, pours it over Jesus, anoints him with it. And some people there are ticked. They're so upset because they go, look, you, that, 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 that was worth so much money. You could have used it for so many things, but you wasted it on Jesus. 
You know, that's kind of the idea. You could have used it for so many things. And Judas presumably is one of those who's going, what a wasteful way to, to use this. Now for Judas though, his expressed concern wasn't actually his real concern because John, when he tells us that James Judas was the, uh, the keeper of the money bag, says that Judas actually skimmed stuff off the top. He was a thief. He, he was in it kind of for his own gain. And so for Judas, he's probably looking at that and going, that, that was money that could have gone in my coffers, you know? I, with one year's wages, I could have bought like a lift ticket to Whistler, you know? He's, he's, he's like, I could have had that money for myself to spend on something that I want. He's greedy about it. And so Judas decides, I'm, I'm going to get that money another way. I'll get it. I'll get it somehow else. And he goes to the chief priests of the Jews and he says, I know you're looking to kill him, and I'll help you with that. I'll, 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 give, you, I'll give you the place. I'll give you the time. I'll lead you to him. And, and they give him 30 pieces of silver for it. And, uh, and Judas, now the most, maybe the most famous traitor in history, sees Jesus arrested and condemned, all according to plan. And he is filled with remorse. He's filled with, with sorrow about this. And he goes off and he hangs himself which actually gets at something that Paul says in 2 Corinthians, interestingly, about how there's worldly sorrow that leads to death and there's godly sorrow that leads to repentance and to life. Judas is filled with worldly sorrow. He doesn't receive grace, doesn't seek change. He just goes off. He hangs himself. And if we are to, to reconcile the different accounts in the Bible about the death of Judas, it would seem so he throws the money back at the chief priest that they've given him. He goes and hangs himself in the field. The priests then buy that field. While Judas is, is hanging, uh, he, he kind of comes out of the noose. Maybe his body gets bloated, falls to the ground, splits open. Innards come spilling out. Beautiful imagery for your Sunday morning. Uh, don't ever say that the Bible is boring. <laughs> Yeah, so that's what happens to Judas. And, and you can see why this would have been such an embarrassment because Jesus chose him. Jesus, the guy who is in very nature divine, the guy who is supposed to be the best judge of character, the guy who's supposed to be all-knowing, chose Judas, a thief and a traitor, as one of his disciples, as one of his inner circle. You know what I mean? Like you, you could understand if there was a temptation to just write the guy out of the story. Just cover it up. Be like, no, no, that didn't happen. Judas, who are you talking about? But they don't do that. The disciples don't do that. And I think there are a few reasons. One is, is simply because it would be dishonest for them to do that. This is how it happened. This is the reality. Uh, another reason, I think, is that Judas ends up serving as, as kind of a cautionary tale. You know, here's a guy who had all the right associations. I mean, he was part of the inner circle. He had a leadership role. If you asked anybody around, they would have said, well, well, in terms of Jesus, obviously Judas is in. You know, he hangs out with the right people, says the right things. Like, clearly, he is one of the chosen, one of the, one of the, one of the saved, right? Like, without a doubt, they would have said about him. But we read over and over again in scriptures that God does not judge the way that humans judge. He doesn't judge by appearances. He knows the heart. He can see what's actually going on. He's not, he's not deceived by the appearances that we put on. And one of the scarier things that Jesus ever said, he said that on the day of judgment, many would say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name 
and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Jesus says, I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. The words, the associations, the assumptions that others make will carry little weight at the end. This is a a special, I think especially a temptation when Christianity is the norm and when being associated with Jesus gives you status. I was out for coffee with someone here uh, last, uh, this, this past week. We were talking about church history. We were talking about some of these popes in the, in the Middle Ages. Uh, and and the, they, they were scoundrels, man. Absolute scoundrels. These were the leaders of the church in the eyes of all. But you had guys like Pope Alexander VI, who decorated his Vatican apartment with images of pagan gods and fathered nine children out of wedlock and didn't hide it, made them dukes and married them off to other kings. I don't think that's quite what Jesus had in mind for the church. But, but he was the Pope, right? And everyone was like, well, that's, that's how it is. You know, he's obviously, he's the, he's the vicar of Christ. But you know what? It's still a temptation today. Within the church, leaders and maybe especially pastors, can easily fall in to this, this temptation to just put on appearances, right? You know the words to say, you know what you have to do to make everybody think that you're, you're doing well, that you're a leader, that you're this high up kind of spiritual figure, but it does not fool God. And so maybe especially for all of us in leadership, all of us, but maybe especially people like me, we need to listen to the words of Paul in Acts 20. He says, keep watch over yourselves. Make sure that your heart is, is connected to the appearance and the reputation you're trying to convey. Because if it doesn't, it, it will be revealed and it will be judged as it was in Judas. So, so that's one reason. But I think in the, the other reason, and, and probably the more clear reason from the text that the disciples don't write Judas out of the story, is because they had come to understand that it had to happen this way. That according to the scriptures, Jesus had to be handed over by sinful men to sinful men. That he had to suffer. He had to suffer as a righteous man who didn't deserve it. Right to the very end. Right to death at the hands of of, of people. He, He had to do this. And so Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he chose Judas. Because he knew exactly what needed to happen according to the scriptures. And now the disciples are doing the same thing. They're doing what is necessary to do in accordance with the scriptures. See, as as first century Jews, they knew their Bibles in and out. They knew the scriptures. And then added on to that, Jesus in his post-resurrection time with the disciples had spent a lot of time explaining to them this is how to understand the scriptures. At the end of Luke 24, we read that Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Jesus taught them this is how everything is to be understood. This is how everything's fulfilled by me. Now, Peter realizes this. And Peter realizes that in accordance with the scriptures, Judas needs to be replaced. Because Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, had been on a mountainside. And he had chosen 12 disciples, right? To kind of make himself known to, to make himself known through. And 12 was not, it wasn't an arbitrary number. It wasn't random. It wasn't because Jesus was a big Tim Hortons Donuts fan. It wasn't because he loved Canadian football, 12 players on one team on the field any one time. 
Uh, and it, it, it was because, it was because in, in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, on top of Mount Sinai, God had, had covenanted with the people of Israel, the 12 tribes, the, 12, the descendants of the 12 sons of Jacob. He had, he had entered into this relationship with them. He had said, you're going to be my people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make myself known to you. You're going to be my, my people who make me known to the world. And so here's Jesus on top of a mountainside choosing 12. What's the message? The message is this is now the people of God. This is now new Israel. True Israel is, is around the disciples of Jesus. And so Peter knows because Jesus has told them that they're about to be launched on a mission to make Jesus known to the world. And to do that, they've got to have this 12. They are God's people. They can't be 11. They've got to be 12. But also, Peter knows specific scriptures that seem to have been fulfilled by Judas. He mentions a couple of them here in verse 20. And when I was, uh, when I was reading through this as a teenager, I remember reading these verses and thinking, Peter, there's no way those verses mean what you, what you think that they mean. I mean, you've ripped them out of context. I I always was taught, don't rip verses out of context. Don't just throw them on bumper stickers and fridge magnets. Like, what, did Hallmark put you up to this, Peter? What are you doing? But actually, I've realized now in my wise old age that Peter understood the context of these scriptures better than I ever did uh, because these psalms actually have everything to do with what's happened in, in, the, in the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Uh, Psalm 69 is the first one that he quotes. And, and Psalm 69 is quoted often in the New Testament. And the, the focus, it's, so it's written by King David, the anointed king by God over Israel. And David here is, is a righteous sufferer. Doesn't deserve it, but he's suffering at the hands of evil and wicked people. And he's lamenting this. Psalm 109 is the next psalm that that, uh, Peter quotes. And that one is even more specifically, it's it's also by King David, but it's specifically about an individual who it seems was in the leadership circle who had betrayed David, and, and now David is lamenting that. So now, fast forward to Jesus, you've got the son of David, a descendant of King David, the Messiah, which means the anointed one. It's a royal term. And, and remember, the ascension of Jesus is all about him setting up his throne, being king over Israel. So you've got the, the son of David, king of Israel, anointed one who has been betrayed, has been handed over to wicked men, betrayed by someone on his inside kind of circle, and, and, and despite the fact that he was righteous to the very end. And those psalms talk about how this, the, these wicked people have to be taken out of the picture and, and this, this position of leadership has to be replaced. It makes sense, right? There's a lot more going on than what you see here at first, but Peter knew that because he was immersed in the Scriptures and because in conversation with Jesus, he rightly understood them. And this is the great need today as well. Because so many Christians in the West, in the modern West, simply don't know their Bibles. And they don't know how the pieces fit together. And so how can they understand what's going on in the world or what we are to do about it? It's a little bit like this. 
Guys, look, I got you a new Lego set. What does it do? I don't know. What's it for? I don't know. Wow. I mean, we have, you know, we've got this book that tells us this is what, this is what life is supposed to look like as a follower of Jesus. This is what, th these are the problems in the world and we just kind of discard it and ignore it and don't pay attention to it. Our great need to understand the world, to understand ourselves, to understand what we're to do here is to be immersed in the scriptures and through conversation with Jesus to have him help us understand it. Now there's another word I think for conversation with Jesus, but I'm not going to say it yet because I'm working up to it. So let's keep going. Verse 21, therefore, Peter said, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. And then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. So they, they've got, they, they understand what they're supposed to do about the problem. Because of the Jesus-informed understanding of scriptures, they know they've got to replace Judas. So what do they do? Well, they set out some criteria for this, for this 12th apostle, which is crucial, by the way, in church leadership. Uh, throughout the ages, it had, church leaders have not always been chosen by the right criteria. Sometimes it's because, well, they've been, they've been really successful in other parts of their life, so let's throw them in here. Or maybe, hey, we, this person's willing. They're a warm body. We just need somebody, anybody, and they're willing. So get them in. In the Middle Ages, those scoundrel popes, it was like, do you have enough money to buy off the voters? You know, that was, that was about it. The, the reasons range from bad to worse. But when we choose leaders not based on biblical criteria, the church suffers. So for the disciples, for Peter, he said, look, whoever takes this, this spot has to be somebody who's been with us from the beginning. You know, they, they, have, they have seen the whole of Jesus' life. They've heard what he has to say. He can, they can bear witness like we can. And so they've got two nominees. They've got Matthias and they've got Barsabbas. And to choose between the two, they cast lots which is a form of, uh, well, in the ancient, day, ancient world, it was a form of divination. It involved, in, in the eyes of, of humans, luck and chance. It's like taking a, a bunch of sticks. One of them is the short one, and everybody takes one, and whoever gets the short stick is the lucky or the unlucky one. Another modern equivalent is, is drawing names out of a hat. I, uh, I've heard of churches maybe more a few generations ago. They would nominate a bunch of possible leaders, and uh, they would have a bunch of Bibles set out on a table. And all of the nominees were to take a Bible. And one of those Bibles had a piece of paper in it. And that was, that was the chosen person. Like, that was who would take the, the position. 
So can you imagine just like opening up the Bible and being like, hey, you're the new lead pastor, you know? Some of you are thinking, it all makes sense now. That's how you got this job. I was wondering. But that's it. I, was, I got the Bible, guys. I'm lucky. I'm the lucky one. Now, it seems like a strange way to make a decision, right? To make such an important decision to, uh, to just cast lots. But a few things uh, about this. The first is that this form of making decisions had a long history in the Scriptures. So, uh, so the, the high priest in Israel had this thing called an ephod, his breastplate. And, and, and part of this were these two objects, the Urim and the Thummim. And these, these objects helped the high priest discern what God's will was. So in 1 Samuel, we read this story, and, uh, and King Saul, the guy, the predecessor to David, prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel, Why have you not answered your servant today? If the fault is in me or my son Jonathan, respond with Urim. But if the men of Israel are at fault, respond with Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken by lot, and the men were cleared. Saul said, cast the lot between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. And in 1 Samuel, Jonathan actually is the guilty one. He's, he, he is, I mean, it works. And so we're led to believe God does use methods like this in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures to kind of make his will known. Second thing, though, is that this happens, Acts 1 happens in a very unique historical circumstance because it's after Jesus has ascended and it's before the Holy Spirit has descended because after this, we never again read about the disciples using a method like this to discern God's will and direction. After this, it's just by, by the Holy Spirit's guidance. We never again read about casting lots. So I think we've got to be really careful about how eagerly we use this kind of way of discerning God's will today when we have the Holy Spirit. But the third thing to take note of is that the focus actually is not on the casting of lots. That's not actually... That's not how the decision gets made. Look at the context of them casting the lots. What are, they, what are they doing when this happens? Verse 14, they all join together constantly in prayer. Verse 24, right before they cast lots, they pray to the Lord. Specifically, they pray to Jesus. The Lord becomes the common way of referring to Jesus in, in the New Testament. They're praying to Jesus because they believe that Jesus is king. He's Lord of heaven and earth. He, he's king over all. He's Lord of the church. He's got a certain desire and, and will for the church. They believe that he's present and active right here in the upper room. They believe he's chosen somebody. They want to do what Jesus wants. The focus is on prayer. It's prayer that Jesus responds to. It's prayer that God honors. It's, it's not some method of divination. It's prayer that has led them all the way. See, for 10 days, between, between the ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit, the disciples are devoted to prayer. They're continually praying. They're praying in the temple courts. They're praying in the upper room. Everywhere they go, they are praying. Jesus had told them to wait for the power, but waiting didn't mean doing nothing. They waited 
by praying, by seeking the Lord, by prayerfully working through the issues that came up. It was prayer through and through. And as I said at the beginning, in the end, it was probably the most powerful prayer meeting in church history, partly because they resolved this first big issue of what to do about Judas, but more so because of what happened afterwards. Because this led to, anticipated, the outpouring of the Spirit, people being filled with the joy and the love of God, being given gifts for ministry. I mean, within days, thousands and thousands of people in Jerusalem, because of the outpouring of the Spirit, had come to trust in Jesus and be baptized. And the spark for all of that was prayer. Now, I told you at the beginning about this, um, this community in Heronhut. I said, uh, I talked about how they, they devoted themselves to prayer 24-7, 24 people, uh, men, 24 women, committing this, this unbroken chain of prayer. I, I told you that I would say at the end what came of that. So this is now the time, guys. We're almost there. We're almost at the end. Uh, so five years, infighting, lots of division, they commit to prayer for revival and evangelism. And in May of 1727, revival comes. The Holy Spirit is poured out on this group. They're, they're filled, like in Acts 2, they're filled with, with joy. All of those, the, the divisions and the infighting ceases. There's this unity. Non-believers are, are coming to faith for four straight months. It's just like heaven has come to earth. That's actually how Zinzendorf described it. He said the whole place represented truly a visible habitation of God among men. It was just his, his presence was so rich, so abundant. And it was actually out of that I thought it was the other way around, but as I, as I read through it again, it was out of that. They were already praying in a committed way, but that was where they said, we don't want to let this fire burn out. And so that was where this 24-7 thing began. Um, t- six months after the 24-7 prayer began, Zinzendorf encouraged the, the Moravian believers to think about going out as missionaries, to spread the good news of Jesus to those who hadn't heard it. The very next day, 26 Moravian Christians stepped forward and said, we'll go. And they ended up going to places like Scandinavia and Greenland and and Turkey uh, and the West Indies, bringing the good news of Jesus. By the time 60 years had passed of this unbroken chain of prayer, this Moravian community that was made up of 300 people at the beginning had sent out 300 missionaries around the world. Going back now, 10 years after the 24-7 prayer began. There was a group of Moravian believers who were on a ship traveling from what was then the British colonies, what became the United States, back to England. They're on this ship, and there's this massive storm. I've told some of you the story before. But there was this massive storm, and, uh, and people think that they're going to die, like the ship is in danger. Um, the Moravians did not feel in danger. They were just praising and worshiping God right in the middle of this crazy storm. They were totally at peace. Even if they died, they were like, well, it's fine. We know where we're going. One guy on the ship who was not at peace, who was very afraid, was a man named John Wesley. And John Wesley was so struck by what he saw in these Moravian believers from Herrenhut, Germany, that when he got back to England, he sought desperately for what the Moravians had that he didn't. Eventually, he walked into a meeting in London, 
he heard the good news that God loved him, loved him so much that he gave his son Jesus, that salvation was by grace, not by works. His heart was strangely warmed. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And John Wesley became one of the most prominent figures in the Great Awakening, this movement of the Holy Spirit on both sides of the Atlantic through the 1730s and 40s that brought countless people into a living relationship with Jesus. And it was sparked by this little community in, in, in landlocked, in, in, in Herrenhut, Germany, tucked away in this country. It's incredible to me. And I, and I wonder, I wonder if you, if you understand that the same God who did that, who sparked this great awakening through a little community of believers committed to prayer, do you know he's still around today? Do you know that the same God who, who prepared the disciples for Pentecost is still around today? That this same God wants to actually fill you and fill us with power through the Holy Spirit and that prayer is still the pump that connects His power to His people? I mean, what would happen? What would happen if Christians today were to let go of some of the distractions and the frivolities and all these superficial things and actually commit to prayer, what would happen if the little band of believers known as the Bridge Church were to actually say, we don't want to let the fire burn out. We want it to keep going. We want to offer this, this, this offering of prayer to God continually. What would happen? How would our relationships with each other in a world full of division? How would our relationships be changed? How would our perception of this world with all of its problems and issues be changed? How would our community and maybe even our world as a whole be changed? Let's pray. Let's sing. And then I'll tell you some ideas about how we can live this out. Jesus, we are so thankful for the witness of the early church. It wasn't, uh, despite what we may have thought, Lord, it, it, wasn't, um, it wasn't a time that was without its difficulties or challenges for the early church. They had to reckon with, with Judas. They had to reckon with brokenness in, in their own ranks. And yet through prayer, Lord, you, you, you brought them through that. You, you enabled them to navigate those waters. And, and you prepared them for Pentecost. You prepared them for the outpouring of the Spirit. And Lord, we, we want to say today that we want the same. We, 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 want to, we want to meet with you. We want to hear your voice. We want you to enable us to understand the scriptures so that we can understand the world and understand ourselves. And, and, and Lord, we, we, want to, we want to offer this, this fire on, on your altar of prayer. Because Lord, we, we want to experience your presence. We want to be your people. We want to know what it's like to be filled with your love and your joy and your peace. So Lord, we want to today we want to say we we make space for you. 
We want to make space for you. We want to set aside time to meet with you individually, corporately, so that you will renew us and fill us again. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.